Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Before we start the program, we want to remind you that our Easter sale is currently going on. Visit LogosBibleStudy.com, click on Online Classroom, choose from any one of our online courses, and at checkout, use coupon code EASTER2018, and you'll get 40% off enrollment. That's EASTER2018, and you'll get 40% off enrollment in any online course. Now, time for the program. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hi, gang. Bill Creasy here today. I'm recording this podcast on a Wednesday morning, and it will be posted on Sunday evening. That would be Palm Sunday. So welcome to Holy Week. You know, we, we began Lent on Ash Wednesday, February 14th. That was Valentine's Day this year. And that's a heck of a note. Ash Wednesday is a day of fasting. So we had to put off until the weekend our traditional romantic Valentine's Day dinner at Mille Fleur, my favorite and really superb restaurant here in San Diego. But on Ash Wednesday, those of us who are Roman Catholics received ashes on our foreheads at Mass that morning. And the priest said, as he put the ashes on our forehead, remember you are dust and unto dust you shall return. Well, that should get our attention. Every single one of us will die, no exceptions. And we shouldn't be afraid of it really. After all, it can't be that hard when you visit the cemetery, everyone in it is 100% dead and they all got it right on the first try. But It's important as we enter Lent to remember who we are and who we'll be. Just dust and ashes. I think about that often, especially during Lent. You know, we we strut and fret through life with all of its worries and burdens, the cares and concerns. And yet, within three generations, no one will know we even existed. I thought about that today. March 21st would have been my father's 94th birthday, and I have so many memories of him. Good memories. And so do my two brothers. My sons have a few memories of him too, but not many. He died 10 years ago, and we lived on opposite coasts, Austin, California, he and Pennsylvania. My dad lives on in our memories quite vividly. But once we're gone, so will our memories of him be gone. And the same thing will happen to us. Remember, as the priest said at Mass on Ash Wednesday, you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. And to keep things in the right perspective, we'd be wise to remember the dust that gets stuck on itself is nothing but mud. And yet, as insignificant as we all are in the great scheme of things, we're infinitely precious in the eyes of God. So precious and so important that God sent His own Son to suffer and die for us, to shed His blood on the cross. In God's eyes, we're more than a memory were infinitely more than a memory. You might recall David writing in Psalm 139. That's my favorite psalm. David writes, O Lord, you search me and you know me. 
You know my resting and my rising. You discern my purpose from afar. You mark when I walk or lie down. All my ways lie open to you. Before ever a word is on my tongue, you know it, O Lord, through and through. Behind and before you besiege me, your hand ever laid upon me. Too wonderful for me, this knowledge. Too high beyond my reach. And then David goes on to say, For it was you who created my being, who knit me together in my mother's womb. I thank you for the wonder of my being, for the wonders of all your creation. Already you knew my soul. My body held no secret from you when I was being fashioned in the secret and molded in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw all my actions. There were all of them written in your book. Every one of my days was decreed before one of them came into being. As we enter Holy Week, we might keep that in mind. Lent has been a period of preparation, a period of imitating Christ, if you will, of imitating Christ in the wilderness after his baptism by John in the Jordan River. For him, it was a period of stripping away the non-essentials. For us, a period of drawing closer to Christ, of coming to know him in a personal, intimate way. We all know the story of the Lord's passion, of his arrest at the Garden of Gethsemane, his trial before the Sanhedrin and before Pontius Pilate, his carrying the cross to Calvary, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. But do we really understand what he did for us, what he endured on that cross? This past January, I led our Israel Highlights Tour. That was my 58th Israel teaching tour. And on those tours, we walked the Via Dolorosa through the old city of Jerusalem, the Way of the Cross, from the Antonio Fortress, where Pilate had his headquarters in Jerusalem, to the Holy Sepulchre, the place of Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and resurrection. We stop and we pray at each of the 14 stations along the way. But do we really understand what happened there on Calvary? All during Lent, my wife and I wake up at 5 a.m. and we go to our little church in La Jolla Village where we spend an hour in the Adoration Chapel, a quiet, early morning time of prayer before the Eucharist. And then we attend daily Mass. It's a way of getting centered for the day, a, a way of getting things in the right perspective. And it's something we'll continue after Lent ends. I've been going to daily Mass for years, but spending an hour beforehand in adoration really transforms the experience of Mass, at least for me. During our adoration time, I pray the morning prayer from the Liturgy of the Hours, and I happen to see in the appendix to the liturgy a collection of poems. And there's one that I've been reading daily for the past couple of weeks. It's a poem by the Scottish poet Edwin Muir, and I'd like to read it to you. I read it this morning at Adoration, and it really struck me yet again. 
So let me read it to you. It's titled, The Killing. That was the day they killed the Son of God on a squat hilltop by Jerusalem. Zion was bare, her children from their maze, sucked by the demon curiosity, clean through the gates. The very halt and blind had somehow got themselves up to the hill. After the ceremonial preparation, the scourging, nailing, nailing against the wood, erection of the main trees with their burden, while from the hill rose an orchestrous wailing, they were there at last, high up in the soft spring day. We watched the writhings, heard the moanings, saw the three heads turning on their separate axles like broken wheels left spinning. Round his head was loosely bound a crown of plaited thorn that hurt at random, stinging temple and brow as the pain swung into its envious circle. In front, the wreath was gathered in a knot that as he gazed looked like that last stump left of a death-wounded deer's great antlers. Some who came to stare grew silent as they looked, indignant or sorry. But the hardened old and the hard-hearted young, although at odds from the first morning, cursed him with one curse. Having prayed for a rabbi or an armed messiah and found the Son of God. What use to them was a God or a Son of God? Of what avail for purposes such as theirs? Beside the cross foot alone, four women stood and did not move all day. The sun revolved, the shadow wheeled, the evening fell. His head lay on his breast. But in his breast, they watched his heart move on by itself alone, accomplishing its journey. Their taunts grew louder, sharpened by the knowledge that he was walking in the park of death, far from their rage. Yet all grew still at last, spite, curiosity, envy, hate itself. They waited only for death, and death was slow, and came so quietly they scarce could mark it. They were angry then with death and death's deceit. I was a stranger, could not read these people or this outlandish deity. Did a God indeed in dying cross my life that day by chance? He on his road and I on mine? I think that is a fabulous poem. Just a fabulous poem. Think about it, my friends. During Lent, and especially during Holy Week, if we're attentive, we encounter Christ in a vivid, visceral way. During the Holy Triduum, Thursday evening through Sunday evening of Holy Week, the Last Supper through Jesus' resurrection on Easter morning, we reach the pinnacle of the liturgical year, a time when we remember, celebrate, and truly experience in a very real way the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ.
So as we enter Holy Week, I encourage all of you, whether Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, or just seeking, to participate in the deepest way possible in this wonderful time of year. Think about and engage Christ this week in a personal, intimate way, the most personal, intimate way possible. And if you do, it will change your life profoundly. It will change your life forever. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget to take advantage of our Easter sale. From now until Easter Sunday, get 40% off any online course in the Logos Online Classroom by entering coupon code EASTER2018 at checkout. That's Easter2018 at checkout and save 40% off any online course. Now, back to the program. Here's Dr. Creasy. So welcome back, folks. Uh, we're moving now into our question and answer period. And the very first question comes from Jesse C. Uh, Jesse wrote to me personally, a personal email, and he said, I'm about to complete Dr. Creasy's seven-year verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible on audible.com, over 500 hours of lessons. Well, congratulations, Jesse. That's a long, long way to go. And I really appreciate your listening. Now, Jesse continues, in his lectures, he tells many stories about his childhood, the Marine Corps, his scuba diving and mountaineering adventures and so on. But he never mentions why he converted to the Catholic faith. So my question is, why did Dr. Creasy become a Roman Catholic of all things? Well, good question, Jesse. And it's something I, I really don't address in my classes. You know, in the classes, we have uh, pretty large groups. I recorded those audible recordings between 2005 and 2012 at Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church in Los Alamitos, California. And that class had about 500 people in it. And they were from all different denominations. About half were Roman Catholic, half were Protestants of various denominations. And I think. I deliberately avoided talking about my own, well, call it testimonial or uh, denominational issues, because really I wanted to focus on Scripture, focus on the Bible, the Bible plain and simple as it were, and not introduce denominational issues, including my own. But here on the podcast, uh, that's a really good question to ask, and I'm sure one that that many people have had uh, in the past. So let me address it directly. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was born in 1947, that was a long time ago. And I grew up in a Presbyterian home. Uh, We had the Brighton Road Presbyterian Church a block away from where I lived. Uh, My father was an elder in the church, my mother was a deacon. And Sundays were all about church. We got up in the morning, well, Saturday night, we shined our shoes, got our clothes all ready, got dressed up with a little suit and a clip-on tie. And Sunday morning, we had breakfast together as a family, and we walked up the street to church. I went to Sunday school first thing in the morning, and uh, along with all my friends. And then after Sunday school, we went to church. And my mother was in the choir. Uh, my father and my grandmother sat with us, and I sat next to her. and. 
uh, we attended church. That went on every Sunday all the time I was growing up uh, until I was 18 years old. At 18, I graduated from high school, went off to the Marine Corps for six years, and didn't have to go to church anymore, so I didn't uh, all that time. Well, after the Marine Corps, you know, I, I was a Vietnam era Marine, 1966 to 72. And after that experience, I had really big questions about fundamental issues of the human condition. I started college at Arizona State University, and I was an English major and a philosophy major, double major. I think I mentioned that in our, uh, in our last podcast about reading Moby Dick. But it was a time of, of searching, and I met one of my professors, Dr. Jack Evans, uh, taught 17th century literature. And I took all the classes that Jack had taught, and Jack became a very, a very close friend. On Thursday afternoons, we would meet in his office and we would talk, and we talked about those fundamental issues of the human condition. And Jack was a devout Catholic. I knew that, he never talked about it, but I knew it. And we'd talk, and he never overtly proselytized, he never tried to draw me into the Catholic Church. But it was Jack's example. Jack was the most genuinely good man I had ever met. And I remember, I was about 26 years old at the time, and Jack said, you know, there are two books that you should read. One was C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. C.S. Lewis's autobiography that he wrote as a young man, a man in his 20s. C.S. Lewis had been in the trenches in World War I in France, and along with J.R.R. Tolkien, a very close friend of his who later wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. But Jack said, read C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy. And another, Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain. Thomas Merton had been a, a brilliant graduate student at Columbia University uh, prior to World War II, and right before the war broke out, he entered the Trappist Monastery at uh, Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. So I read both of those books. I read them both in about a week. Uh, I was caught up in them, and I felt like I was reading about myself in, in both of those books. After reading those, and of course, I've been reading other things too, but after reading those, I said to Jack, I think I'd like to become a Roman Catholic. He was quite surprised. And he said, wow, maybe we better go talk to a priest about it. So we walked across the street from the university to the Newman Center, and we met uh, one of the priests at the Newman Center, Father Tom DeMann. And now this is back in the 70s, 1976. And well, you know what the 70s were like. Uh, Father Tom said, how can I help you? And I said to him, well, I, I think I'd like to become a Roman Catholic. And Father Duman said, great, how about Sunday? Well, unlike today, where you go through a year-long period of preparation in the RCIA program, that Sunday I became a Roman Catholic. And when Jack tells the tale, he would say, and that day he become, became a Roman Catholic, a practicing Roman Catholic, and if he keeps practicing, man, maybe he'll get it right. But why did I go that direction? I think in large part because of the example of Jack's life, 
Jack was such a genuinely good man. I wanted to be like Jack. And all during that time, as I was studying and reading, I was writing my master's thesis at the time uh, on Paradise Lost, and I would sit in my apartment in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I would, uh, I would read uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, I would read criticism about Paradise Lost, uh, and I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis, everything that Lewis wrote and everything that Tolkien wrote, and, you know, God unleashed the hound of heaven. He ran me down. And I find in the afternoon, I'd wander down the street, three blocks down from my apartment, uh, to Our Lady of Perpetual Help, a Roman Catholic church. It was the middle of the afternoon. Actually, I went to a Presbyterian church first, but it was locked up tight as a drum in the afternoon. But I went to Our Lady of Perpetual Help, and I would go in and sit in the back, hoping no one would see me there. But somehow I was drawn to that. And I would go every afternoon, all by myself, nobody else there, and just sit there and ponder and pray. And then later I said to Jack, I think I'd like to become a Roman Catholic. And it was something, I guess, God was drawing me home. The church is a family, big family, and like any family, we're as dysfunctional as any other. But it's my family. The church is a family, and I was drawn to that branch of the family, I think by the Holy Spirit, bringing me to the place where today I feel very much at home. Hope that helps, Jesse. Hope it answers your question. I think I have time for one more. Uh, this question is from Dan B. And Dan writes, I'm really enjoying your podcasts, and they, and they get me thinking about the issues that you raise. For example, in the first podcast, you mentioned that Genesis 1 through 11 is mythopoeic literature, a genre of literature that addresses fundamental issues of the human condition in story form. Issues like, how did the universe get here? How did we get here? How did I get here? And more importantly, perhaps, why? And Dan goes on to ask, how do we recognize this mythopoeic genre and are there other genres uh, in Scripture that we might recognize as well? Well, good question, Dan. Mythopoeic literature, as I mentioned, addresses fundamental issues of the human condition in story form. And I think one way to recognize the genre of mythopoeic literature is to compare it to other, other literature of the same period. For example, every culture has its own creation story. The Egyptians had a creation story. Uh, the Canaanites had a creation story. Uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all had creation stories. And there are common threads that run through all of them. If we look for those threads, those common threads in other literature, threads that are similar to those in scripture, well, we're on the trail, we're on the trail of mythopoeic literature. So we can recognize that mythopoeic genre by recognizing the same themes, uh, the same types of stories in other literature of the same time and place. We have other genres in literature, other genres in scripture. Uh, for example, the Psalms are, are poetry. We recognize that quite readily. Uh, the book of Job 
The book of Job is a, a drama that addresses the, the big question we all have of why do bad things happen to good people? And we see that question answered in the drama of Job. Uh, Job addresses that issue. Why do bad things happen to good people? And it does so in a dramatic form, another genre of literature. If we look up in the, in the Gospels, the Gospels are a unique genre in that they're not, uh, not short stories, they're not novels, uh, they're a Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, a unique genre in and of itself. But within the genre of gospel, we have other subgenres, uh, genres like a parable. A parable is a clever story, a clever and memorable story uh, that addresses a particular theme. Uh, the story of the prodigal son, of the love of a father for his son, a son who's gone, gone bad. Well, that's our story. We are prodigal sons. We are prodigal sons and daughters. And we have parables thrown alongside an ordinary truth in a remarkable way that's memorable and that illuminates that old truth. We have stories of resurrection. We have stories in other literature of resurrection. Osiris, for example, uh, is brought back from the dead. Uh, we have stories in scripture of resurrection, well, of resuscitation from the dead. For example, Elijah raises a dead child. The prophet Elisha raises a dead child. Jesus raises three dead people, the widow Zarephath's child, the widow of Nain's child, and Lazarus himself. So stories of raising the dead. And there's a big story in Matthew 27, verse 52, when Jesus dies on the cross, many tombs are opened and many people are raised. So this idea of raising from the dead, of bringing back to life that which is dead, is an ongoing theme uh, in scripture, an ongoing theme in literature. It's an archetype, uh, the resurrection from the dead. So many different genres, we can recognize them by finding the same types of stories in other literature stories that address those really important issues. So Dan, I hope that one helps. Here we are moving into Holy Week. Again, really participate in Holy Week. Engage, engage Christ during this time and come closer to Him. So God bless all of you. I'll be seeing you on Easter next week. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy. Don't forget, we want to hear from you, so go to scriptureuncovered.com and submit your questions. Dr. Creasy might answer them on air. That's scriptureuncovered.com. Submit your questions. And also, if you have a moment, leave us a rating and review in iTunes or wherever you're accessing the podcast. This is the best way to help us spread the word about Logos Bible Study and about Scripture Uncovered. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.